My name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're tackling a very big subject. A whole country's cinematic output. Specifically, the country of Brazil. Here is some interesting information about Brazil. Bounded by the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean on the east, Brazil has a coastline of 7,491 kilometers. It borders all other countries in South America except Ecuador and Chile, and covers 47.3% of the continent's land area. Its Amazon River Basin includes a vast tropical... All right, I'm just going to stop you right here. <laughs> I would have gone on forever. I know, we got to fill these 25 minutes. So I wanted to tackle this subject because I knew nothing about this cinema. And by that, I mean, like, I've heard of terms like Cinema Novo, and I've heard about filmmakers, but it was never something that I really went out of my way to check out. So by giving ourselves this topic, I was like, all right, I'm going to force myself to sit down and watch all of this country's output, which has a very varied one and a cinematic history that spans the birth of the moving picture. I know we like to fancy ourselves film experts on this podcast, although this is one of uh, one of the, let's say, many film industries around the world that I had only a cursory knowledge of. Cursory. I had no knowledge whatsoever of Brazil, aside from the <laughs> yeah. fact that there is a Terry Gilliam movie called Brazil and uh, also that City of God came from there. Oh, wait, we're not talking about terry gilliam's brazil i'm in trouble <laughs> i'm not going to claim that i come here with any expertise uh, or that this was a particularly easy week for me but i did appreciate this week as an opportunity to uh, look at a couple of isolated examples of a country's rich and vast film history almost as like windows into an unfamiliar culture at a different time and also to make connections between those films and what else was happening around the world i was struck by the fact that i mean film truly is a global medium. You can see how other film industries, other film movements influenced the films that we watched this week. You know, a lot of the countries that me and you have a lot of affinity for, their cinema speaks a language that is very accessible to people like you and me, like Hong Kong. It's very big and it's wild. Uh, Japan has its own kind of formalism to the stuff. Or even Italy, which is exploitation kind of wave that went out. Well, Brazil... Like all of the top films are often very politically and historically minded that without the context to appreciate the place that they came from, a lot of them just left me baffled. Like one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode was to give myself a reason to watch Black God, White Devil, which uh, came out in 1964 and was part of the Cinema Novo wave. And finally, when I sat down to watch it and I got to the end, I was like, oh, I don't know if I got it. <laughs> yeah, I had a hard time with this movie too although it is considered one of the greatest brazilian films of all time uh, its director glober rocha i am not sure if i'm pronouncing his name right is considered maybe the best brazilian filmmaker of all time certainly one of the best brazilian filmmakers and it's one of the quintessential examples of the cinema novo movement cinema novo is brazil's sort of equivalent to the french new wave although i guess that's a reductive comparison well cinema novo came out of essentially the same reason the french new wave came out which was that a bunch of cinephiles and artists felt kind of fed up with the output that brazilian cinema had up to that point they had had their own industry especially early on that was fairly popular 
And that was a little bit being crushed by the American uh, capitalist interests that had come into the country. So these filmmakers wanted to kind of reinvent what film could be, that it could be a more um, aggressive and in-your-face politically and historically than what had come before, or specifically with Black God, White Devil – allegorically, because what you're seeing on screen is taking the kind of shape and weight of myth. Well, I know from having read about the film that the thesis of it is that people need to understand self-reliance. There, there are many ideologies, there are many religions and political systems that are competing for our attention, but they are all flawed in some way, and we must forge our own path. You know, that's something that I think I can understand, I guess, on an intellectual level. But uh, do, I, do I really understand it in the context of Brazil in 1964? Probably not. <laughs> I don't see the reflections of things that would have probably resonated with the audience who had watched it at the time of its release, seeing like the uh, Black God figure or the white devil figure as allegorical representations of things that had gone through Brazil's history. So like you just have this protagonist who gets kind of hoodwinked by these leaders who, you know, he just joins these cults that do really bad things. And that's the plot of the movie. All the films that we looked at this week, uh, what they have in common is they seek to, I guess, encapsulate all of Brazil's social ills over the course of their hundred minute or two hour runtime. They all deal very heavily in class schisms and uh, some of them deal very explicitly with corruption in the Catholic Church. This movie, Black God, White Devil, when people talk about it, they often use the words stark and poetic. And it's stark because the scenes go on very long and the images are minimalist, but they're intense. And it's intense not only in what's going on, but also the visual look, which is completely overblown. So the sky is just a nothing whiteness that you can almost feel the heat emanating from the screen throughout the entirety of the motion picture. Yeah, it feels almost painful to look at at times. And I mean, it really slows down in the second half where there are a lot of scenes of people standing in fields and talking very heavily to each other. And uh, Globair Rocha really makes you sit in those compositions just forever. When it starts, the first thing you think is, oh, this is kind of like a Brazilian Western. And then as it goes along, you think, oh, it's kind of like a Brazilian spaghetti Western. But like, you know, an arty Western. I was like, I can take this like El Topo. That's arty Western, right? And it's kind of like that. I mean, I would compare it actually to uh, Jodorowsky's uh, Fando Elis, his first feature film, which is also people in the desert just kind of walking and talking to each other. But even that one has, I think, more kind of visual invention, while Black God, White Devil is playing more off of the template of like John Ford and uh, Sergei Eisenstein. So I found it a tough set. I hope it's a movie that will live on in my memory and and perhaps even flower in my memory. I think it's one that we would probably speak about a little bit differently if we had caught it in a movie theater where the images would have been more kind of engrossing or even crushing when you're seeing it on such a big screen where the whites would really pop and hurt your eyes almost as if you're looking right into the sun. It's interesting. I don't think this movie is particularly, I mean, it's known by the people who know it, but I don't think it's become a particularly big crossover kind of international art house success. Am, am I making that up? I wouldn't know exactly that information, but 
you know, the Cinema Novo movement, I think there's a very particular reason that me and you have not heard about them while we've heard about stuff like the French New Wave. It's Cinema Novo movement is not fun. <laughs> like, that was never its intention. When you look at stuff like Godard, Truffaut, Rivette, uh, Chabrol, there's a playfulness there. And I think that that's what international audiences and the French audiences are responding to. While the Cinema Novo movement is mostly about anger and kind of articulating those feelings on screen in a way that cinema in Brazil had not done up to that point. Well, to move on to a movie that actually did make waves around the world on the festival circuit, 1962's The Given Word is the only Brazilian movie to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And when I watched it, it definitely felt like it was of a piece of, let's say, a certain continuum of art film sensibility in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, it has that kind of mixture of Italian neorealism. And neorealism is a term that we'll probably mention a few more times because Brazilian cinema with its emphasis on kind of poverty and the horrors of colonialism, you know, re- neorealism is the place to go for those things. But it also has a kind of Bunuelian uh, surreality to it all. Yeah, Bunuel was the example that I thought of while watching it too. The plot involves Zay. He's a simple man who loves his donkey. Uh, when his donkey falls ill, he makes a promise to God that if the donkey recovers, he'll carry a crucifix across Brazil and he will uh, give it to a church church, and also he's going to give away all of his land to the poor. Uh, Early in the film, he arrives at the church. The priest there uh, thinks that this is a heretical or a a paganistic act that he's doing, very suspicious of this man who seems to be burlesquing the, the passion of Christ and turns him away. And this creates this media frenzy, a public and governmental and media frenzy. The film has been compared a lot to Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. The central image of this simple man carrying a cross across the country and then ending up being rejected from a church, that's a very powerful and loaded image. And as Justin said, it calls to mind somebody like Bunuel. But it's a more literal film than Bunuel. It has more straightforward melodrama in it. Um, It has a satiric tone, but it has a lot of that uh, kind of post-war neorealist energy, that that grime and that life. It's kind of um, Bunuel during his Mexican period. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, you know, you could imagine this playing the same festival circuit as somebody like Bergman, another filmmaker who is very interested in, if not the death of God, then at least the institutions that were holding God up, you know? And if you compare this movie, The Given Word, to Black God, White Devil, this one is made in so much more of a classical form that is recognizable to most people. While its message is kind of revolutionary in all the questions that it's posing, not giving any easy answers as it's, you know, showing up all these hypocritical ideas, it's still something that is digestible, that could win a palm door, while Black God, White Devil is in your face and it's daring you to actually enjoy it. <laughs> well, I definitely found it, yeah, more more accessible. It's a movie that, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but it's a movie where everything is kind of on the surface, you know? Like, it's a movie that's um, debating through its issues in front of you. You know, while I was reading about the history of Brazilian cinema, I was 
fascinated by the idea of a chanchada, which is a genre that came out specifically from Brazil that is representative of like musicals and, you know, uh, the carnival that happens in Brazil. And it's one that was very popular, but kind of looked down upon by intellectuals. And I was like, oh man, this is for me. It seems to me that in the narrative of the history of Brazilian cinema, it's sort of similar to the narrative of the history of French cinema, where you have this discredited form in France it was the tradition of quality here it's the the very popular Hollywood influenced cinema of the 40s and 50s and then along came this atomic blast of this new movement the French new wave or cinema novo that rendered everything that came before it immaterial or like that it didn't matter yeah discredited like I watched a few chinchadas hoping to like hook into like, ah, yes, this is their Marx Brothers. But I'm going to be honest, like none of them connected with me. You mentioned the Marx Brothers, and I know that one of the big movie stars was a fellow named Oscarito, who has been compared to Harpo Marx. Did you find him in your travels? I did, because I watched Carnival Atlantida, which had a great plot too, which was about a movie studio wants to make a new film with Cecilio B. DeMillo, a Helen of Troy adaptation, and they get um, a stuffy professor to help them out. Cue a bunch of musical numbers and some questionable portrayals of some of the people of Brazil. Maybe it was because I didn't speak Portuguese, so it landed with a thud, but it wasn't quite as manic as I wanted it to be. The musical numbers, while there were a lot of them, weren't as imaginative as I hoped they would be. So I think it is like a thing of maybe I didn't watch the right one, or maybe, you know, local audiences at the time would have gotten more out of it because they're seeing a form of their culture represented on screen that the American movies never did. And that does make a big difference. Like in Quebec, these Quebec comedies, they make big boffo box office in Quebec, but they do not travel anywhere else. This is a random point, but I understand from my research, my cursory research into Brazil, that it's a film industry that has, like a lot of film industries around the world, relied very heavily on government incentives. In 1939, there was a quota system that was introduced, for example. I believe the quota system is still technically on the books, although it's not really enforced in Brazil anymore. Well, a lot of people say that uh, the Brazilian film industry kind of died in 1989 when dem democracy came along because the total of Brazilian films that were made, which were in the hundreds, dropped to just 25. <laughs> it's worth noting that movies like The Given Word and Black God, White Devil would have been unthinkable after the late 60s when there was a military coup. For many years, Brazil was under a military dictatorship. And in fact, Glober Rocha, the director of Black God, White Devil, lived much of the rest of his life in exile. The Cinema Novo movement is interesting because, you know, like the French New Wave, it started real strong with all these, you know, loud voices. And within 12 years, it had essentially eaten its own tail because the new young filmmakers that were coming out were like, ah, the early Cinema Novo people, they're the Cinema de Papa. We're the real garbage cinema. So the kind of aesthetic got more and more um, impoverished and kind of episodic and abstract as it went along. Like I watched 1969's Killed the Family and Went to the Movies, and that's all the movie is. It's just like a guy 
He's just hanging out with his family. It feels very much of like the no wave movement that came out of New York, where it's like they had nothing and they just made this movie. And it's like he kills his family, goes to the movie. We start seeing the movie playing on screen, but then we also see him doing things. And then the people in the movie are commenting on what he's doing. It's only like 63 minutes long and eventually it just ends. No credits, just the end. It is the like most skin and bones thing that you could get out of like a new movement. I think I don't have the term in front of me, but they were talking about it as like, you know, it was like garbage cinema that this is what we wanted to do. And this is what we wanted to give to audiences. So you thought that black God, white devil was uh, confrontational. Now watch what I just made. <laughs> and then in 1989, once, you know, democracy's back, all of it ended because the funding just wasn't there anymore. Well, in 2002, a little movie came along called City of God, which I think it's fair to say is the most famous Brazilian movie of all time. I don't think you're going to correct me on that, are you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I am not. I mean, City of God, this is like a boondock saints for like art house kids. This like everybody saw that. I saw it when it came out. I loved it. Bought it at Rogers video when I could get a used copy. Yeah. This and old boy were the foreign movies that people at my high school had seen. And I think it's because that aesthetically it speaks to that kind of look at me. I'm making a movie that any young cinephile like reacts to. It is so present. And it's also giving you a world that no other movie is narratively showing you in this way with all the kind of swoopy Guy Ritchie, Martin Scorsese camera moves and editing techniques that just add that pizzazz to it. Yeah, it's got split screen and it's got that strobe lighting scene and it feels really down and dirty. Like if you're a teenage boy, for example, watching it, it, it's set in slums and sweaty clubs and there are a lot of non-actors and there's a lot of handheld camera work and the violence is very intense and all of that collectively uh, comes together to create a movie that seems very real, quote unquote. It seems very authentic. But also, it's a movie that clearly has the hand of a strong director behind it. So uh, those two those two things, those two contradictory things come together to be absolute catnip for a young teenage cinephile. Yeah, the feeling of realness, but also keep me entertained so I don't have to be challenged too much. And I mean, watching it again, I liked it as much as I liked it when I saw it the first time. There wasn't that kind of aesthetic distance that I get to sometimes stuff like, oh man, I liked Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels that much when I was a teenager. You know what I like about this movie is that its depiction of the slums of Rio de Janeiro isn't simplistic. It's not just misery porn. You see the slums as a place of great life, a place of great community. There's so much happening there. There are so many different people and different kinds of people and different kinds of relationships there. And there's also a lot of gang violence, you know? I mean, yeah, if it had just been kind of, oh, look how bad it is. And look at these kids suffering through their lives. How do they get up in the morning? But instead, you see through these bunch of stories, terrible people, but also people that like their lives continue. They fall in love. They live side by side with these drug dealers who can be really nice guys with specific people while this other bad stuff is going on as well. And by kind of making it a tapestry of, oh, let me back up and tell you their story. It also makes it feel more vast and literary in that sense, especially for a teenager where you're like, I can't get a grip on this movie. It's 
bringing me in all sorts of directions. This is why it must be good. And I mean, it is good, but it, it is like surface wise. You could write it off as somebody just explained all the technique to you, but it's actually the content that makes a difference. And like a lot of the foreign movies that become big international phenomena, like Parasite, for example, it's one of those movies that feels like very culturally specific while also universal. It's not a million miles removed from Boys in the Hood, for example, but the texture of it feels like a window into another world. The director of this movie, I remember being so excited for his second film, which if you do not remember, is The Constant Gardener. <laughs> Essentially like the furthest away that he could get from City of God. I remember sitting in the cinema being like, huh? Okay, maybe his next movie will be the fun one. And it sure was. His next movie was a little movie called Blindness. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe it was his co-director, uh, Ketia Lund, that brought all that energy. Maybe he wanted to get away from his useful revelries and make a real movie. But I think that maybe he was also hurt by the fact that he just ran as far away as he could from Brazil into the warm arms of Hollywood and Canada, I guess. <laughs> his most recent film is a little movie called The Two Popes. Ugh, which is um, very visually unpleasant. So maybe that City of God, like he had one. He had one to say, and that was pretty much it. And, you know, after City of God, it didn't really lead to a resurgence in Brazilian cinema. I think the only other one that people talk about internationally is Elite Squad 1 one and two, which aesthetically is very close to uh, City of God. Like the color palette, the handheld camera work, like it is doing its darndest to remind its audience, hey, you like City of God, right? We're kind of like them too. <laughs> and that director, after doing those two movies, came right to Hollywood to make the RoboCop remake. <laughs> so, you know, at the end of the day, like, historically, contextually, even in the present. I don't know that much about Brazil, but I'm glad I was able to take this journey as a beginner and discover this kind of stuff. Check out The Given Word. Let that be your intro. And hey, who knows? Maybe even check out a movie starring Oscarito, the Harpo Marx of Brazilian cinema. Oh, you should definitely check out the films of Coffin Joe. Yeah, that's its whole other episode, I feel. I the think cinema so. of Coffin Joe. Do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com and our first letter is from alexander lee and it goes hey y'all you've both given your top picks for favorite films of 2010s but what about film criticism which books about film theory published in the last decade or so would you recommend most which if any have most informed your respective approaches to think about movies personally i find myself returning to kayla janice's house of psychotic women more than any other film studies book of recent vintage love the show keep up the good work alex I mean, that is a great book to recommend to any listener here who has not checked out House of Psychotic Women, which is not only a great encyclopedia of films that deal with kind of women and psychosis in a horror context, but is also filtered through uh, Kayla Janice's own personal experiences as a troubled child and troubled adult. So yeah, it hits both those bases in really great ways. Well, in terms of uh, film criticism, a lot of the books I've enjoyed over the last 10 years have been by, you know, the old guard, people like Hoberman and Rosenbaum. I think Jay Hoberman and Jonathan Rosenbaum are two critics who have adapted very interestingly to the changing film industry. A book like Goodbye Cinema, Hello Cinephilia by Jonathan Rosenbaum shows him embracing a kind of new, more online-centric film culture 
in an exciting and even sort of inspiring way. And Hoberman's film after film is a wonderful book that sort of like, like all of his books shows how movies are just one small part of a broader culture. Every time Hoberman has a new book about the Jewish experience filtered through film. All right. I mean, he's written a dozen of them by at this point, but they're always good. Uh, speaking of old guard writing books, how could you forget our good friend, Dave Kerr, who's written two great books of reviews. Oh, I'm glad you brought those up because Dave Kerr, a lot of his writing, I think, was unavailable for many years. Like, he's not like Rosenbaum, where all of his stuff was on the internet. So when his books, When Movies Mattered, and I think the other one's called Movies That Matter, that's the two ones that are called, it felt like opening up King Tut's tomb. It's tough because, like, film books, some of the favorite ones that I have that I'm like, oh, these came out in the last 10 years, right? I look and I'm like, oh, no, wait a minute. Those that actually came out like in the early 2000s, like this uh, quarantine actually gave me the push that I sat down and I read from cover to cover Stephen Thrower's Nightmare USA. All of it. Every article. And, you know, I think in the episode we did on books, I made a joke saying something along the lines of, oh, it's so detailed. Nope, I'm wrong. Every word is worth it. Just engaging, super fun. All these life stories of these filmmakers that if it wasn't for Thrower, wouldn't get a platform to kind of uh, document their hopes and their failures and where they are in their lives at the point that he was writing it. Speaking of Stephen Thrower, I think his two books about Jess Franco and his book about Lucio Fulci, you know, if I pick those off the shelf, I can just get lost in them. They're beyond definitive. Any possible question you could have about Jess Franco is answered in the pages of those books. And and Thrower is also, in addition to being a great historian, he's a good critic and a good writer, too. He has a very interesting perspective. He does. It was a perspective that I think that when I originally got Nightmare USA, I had difficulty getting into, that my perception of what a horror movie needed to be was not fulfilled by the movies that he loved. But reading it through now, where my I think my tastes are much more open than they used to be, I could, he articulates himself that, like, I understand that this is not a conventional horror movie, but this is why Deathbed, the bed that eats, is important, and why the person that made it is actually an artist. And reading it now, I'm like, you know what? I agree with you. I love Deathbed, the bed that eats. I like that Thrower gravitates towards movies that are a bit dreamlike. He's he's written and talked about how he likes movies that seem to almost emulate what it's like to be on drugs or emulate emulate that period right between being awake and, and being asleep. I mean, Thrower includes an amazing anecdote about Deathbed, which is the director did not know the film was released until the 2000s because he made the film, sent it to a bunch of distributors. One of them said, okay, we'll release it. And then decided, "Eh, you know what? We're not going to put it out. And the director said, okay, I guess I made a movie and it'll never see the light of day. But what actually ended up happening was the distributor bootlegged it in the UK. So the film was out there unspeknownst to the director until the 2000s when he was reading an article where people were like who made this movie there's no credits on this film because the film was never completed what is this thing that is such an insane story that's crazy oh another thing i'll mention before we get off this topic is uh not, there have been a number of collections of jonas mikas's writings over the last couple of years there's that collection of all of his well not all of his but a lot of the columns that he wrote for the village voice i think it's called movie journal uh, his his diaries were published recently. There's another book that collects, uh, it's called Scrapbook of the 60s, and it collects a lot of interviews that he did with 
with filmmakers at the time. And I, I don't think Jonas Mikas is, you know, he's not he's not a great critic per se. He's an enthusiast. He's a promoter. But I find those books very interesting as these like on the ground primary source documents of independent and avant-garde film in the 1960s it feels like it feels like traveling back in time you know i've really appreciated the and we've talked about this before the new leonard malton that has been able to flourish in the last few years and he's recently published the zines that he was putting out like in the 2000s uh in a collected book called hooked on hollywood and this is like malton probably like the 2000s he was in his prime but he was still like mailing out personally zines to just like very specific audiences where he interviewed like the most obscure technicians and asked them questions about their trade. And, and that's why he's great. That's why nobody beats Malton. I remember we, I think we did an episode on Malton and we were a little bit jokey in it uh, about his movie guide. And uh, just, you know, in the last few years, it has completely changed. Uh, thanks to stuff like social media, he's been able to flourish and kind of let his passion flag fly. His freak flag fly. Yeah. His freak flag. That's right. I mean, me and Will have stared and wrapped awe as he's just open film cans on Twitter live to see if they've gone vinegar or not. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I'd have to look at my shelf probably a little bit longer to see if there's any other ones that pop out. The Bruce Lee biography. Oh, so good. <laughs> so as per usual, you can send us letters again at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about because it was requested so much. So I married an axe murderer, the Mike Myers film. Will this be the last Mike Myers film we ever discuss? Absolutely not. I still feel like the love guru, uh, gold member are in our future. How about Shrek? Oh, I would love to talk about Shrek. I mean, I've joked episode 400 that we watch all the shrek movies including scared shrekless the the interim <laughs> yeah, all stuff the specials we watch a youtube of the shrek ride at universal studios oh man <laughs> we watch a filmed recording of shrek the musical oh yeah wasn't that like a big hit too shrek the musical i mean i'm sure it was probably just a hit on on like it's a powerful brand and so families will go see it mm -hmm. like on autopilot <laughs> so I Married an Axe Murderer can be listened if you're a Patreon subscriber, $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Also, Gold Ninja Video News, it was a little bit delayed, but there's a new Blu-ray out, which is Terry Chew's Mango Shake. And this is a Gold Ninja first, which is, this is a movie that has not been released anywhere. It played at a bunch of film festivals over the last two, three years. And it played at the What the Film Fest, which is one that I run with Peter Kaplowski. Really loved it. And it just nobody picked it up. And so I asked, I was like, hey, man, do you have any plans of putting it out on Blu-ray? And he was like, hey, you can do it. So I did. <laughs> and there's two versions of the movie. There's one that has been kind of re-edited and is shorter uh, that was made in the wake of it being seen by Peter Kaplowski. And he worked like as a producer to kind of like shape it with the director. And then there's the original work print version of the film. And they're both available on the disc. And there's also commentary with me and Terry. There's a second commentary track that Terry did by himself that I could only describe as Hunter S. Thompson or uh, Abel Ferreira of the Driller Killer commentary track. <laughs> <laughs> People that know what I'm talking about will know. And the movie itself is like a wild... A very personal coming of age film about a bunch of teenagers in Montreal. Very surreal and energetic. And yeah, lots of fun. Probably like nothing you have seen in the last few years in feature length form. He's a real kind of like um, brilliant young artist that unfortunately this film 
wasn't able to get picked up for distribution because that doesn't really exist in this day and age. If it had been like 10 years before, I'm sure someone like um, TLA or something like that, and you would have seen it at Roger's video. But no, we do not exist in that world anymore. But thankfully, I could get access to the film, putting it out on Blu-ray. Oh, it has a soundtrack CD as well of all the songs in the movie and the score and a little booklet like every Gold Ninja video release. One thing I can tell you is this movie definitely would not have been made 10 years ago. <laughs> no, it would not have been made 10 years ago. What's fascinating, and Terry talks about it, is that like he is not a cinephile at all. So all of like the comedy and stuff like that comes from a very organic place not one that like he's trying to recreate anything which is kind of staggering when you actually watch the movie which has echoes of stuff like uh hal hartley or adult swim and terry when asked about it, is like nah yeah i don't really watch that kind of stuff uh, you mean a kid who's 10 years younger than us doesn't know who hal hartley is I barely know who Hal Hartley is. You need to listen to the commentary track because uh, I make a joke about R.E.M. And Terry goes, who's R.E.M.? Which makes me feel a hundred years old. (laughs) And you can hear me react to it in real time. (laughs) And he's like, what what songs did they sing? And I was like so taken aback. I couldn't even think of one. Uh, So that's Mango Shake. It's available at goldninjavideo.com. And it is limited edition as per usual. So when they sell out, they are gone. You've been a good listening audience. You have gone with us on some interesting detours. We have been to Brazil. We have been to Hong Kong with Herman Yao. We have been to Britain with Nick Broomfield. We have decided to do a popular topic next week. And you don't get more popular on this internet of ours than Nicolas Cage. You know what's really funny is that Will said, hey, how about we we do Nicolas Cage? As I was typing, how about we do Nicolas Cage next? Because <laughs> <laughs> was it a brain? Our brains a brain were like, like, listen, we've done a lot of hard topics up until now. <laughs> like we thought that Agnes Varda would be like, oh yeah, that's you know everybody talks about her, but it is the like least listened episode of the most obscure things we've done lately. That's crazy, guys. Yeah, I think Nicolas Cage. He's fun to talk about. He's fun to think about. It's fun to explore. I would suggest that. Uh, we should we should watch at least Vampire's Kiss and Leaving Las Vegas. And I say Leaving Las Vegas because that is, of course, the movie that he won an Academy Award for. Wasn't he nominated for Moonstruck as well? I don't think he was. He was nominated for Adaptation. Right. I already made my list of, uh, I think I have eight movies on it. Like, Nicolas Cage is so, like baked into our bones like we've seen so many movies by him like we could do an episode right now without watching anything (laughs) but i'm excited to do this episode because i feel like nicholas cage especially if you haven't seen his great performances in a while he can get kind of calcified in your brain i want to rediscover him you know i want to rediscover him at his best are you going to reach out for him at his worst as well uh you know at his worst is Real bad. You don't need those. But at his, like, weirdest... I mean, I watch Alex Prius's Knowing, the Kubrick of our time, according to Roger Ebert, and Nick Cage gives such a boring performance in that. It might as well just be anybody. I mean, I know it's trendy to say Nicolas Cage is underrated, but I actually think he's even a little overrated now. He does a lot of very boring performances in a lot of very unworthy movies. It's arguable, and we'll talk about this in the episode, that he gives those boring performances so he can do the wacky performances and other stuff that by continually working, it gives him opportunities to kind of let loose sometimes. And, you know, he owes a lot in taxes. Let's just say I liked it better when he was letting loose in movies like Bringing Out the Dead than when he's letting out in movies like, I don't know, Rage. I mean, I'm excited to discover some that I have not seen in a long time, like the classic Deadfall. So we'll talk about that next week. And until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Justin the Clue, and I just want to interrupt briefly to thank our new Patreon subscribers. That include Connor Mien, Jean Robin, Joseph Torchinsky, Cesar Kardashian, Lloyd Blackman, Richard Chandler, Ben Delory, and Lee Henderson. Thank you very much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do this without you. And for everybody else that can't become a Patreon subscriber due to financial issues, or just has enough of us with one episode a week. We'd really appreciate it if you would go on iTunes or Apple Podcast or whatever service that you use, rate and review us. Or if you've already done that, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X and the letter J. Will's at Will Sloan E-S-Q. And you can also join us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group where we post news and updates. And Gold Ninja Video just this week recently got a new Twitter and a new Facebook group. And you can also join our mailing list at goldninjavideo.com if you want new updates. And now we'll return you to your regular scheduled programming. Quarantine's been kind of bringing me down lately. I feel like the novelty of it has worn off. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you still have to work nine to five and it's even harder than it ever was yeah i mean (laughs) it's bad folks so there are a lot of people in quarantine who are taking time to you know watch berlin alexander platts for the first time or finally read that novel they've been putting aside i feel like if anything my taste has regressed i've just been watching the simplest easiest comfort food for me that means a lot of kung fu movies so I watched a beautiful German Blu-ray restored of Enter the Game of Death starring Bruce Lee. It was great fun, although I have to admit I was a little bit disappointed revisiting it. Because- <laughs> disappointed by a Bruce Lee film? I think I watched it at the time we did our Bruce Bloitation one. I was like, eh, it's not that good. That's the thing. I remembered it being like really wacky and funny, and it mm-hmm. is. It's got a it's got a funny midsection where he's like doing the Bruce Lee thing, going up the pagoda, fighting a different master at each level. I remember the snake sequence, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, the snake sequence. That movie in my head has rested entirely on the snake sequence. And it's a movie that has a lot of action in it. It has fights pretty much from beginning to end. But the fights aren't really all that good. You can tell they were just kind of improvising them on the fly. And Mm -hmm. I mean, Bruce Lee, if you watch a fight like the one in Way of the Dragon between him and Chuck Norris, it tells a story, you know? There are ideas being communicated in the fight. Whereas in Enter the Game of Death... It's just kind of a big old soup of a bunch of kicks and punches, and then each fight lasts exactly as long as the fight before, and it stops, and then it moves on to the next one. So my take is that Enter the Game of Death, starring Bruce Lee, a little bit disappointing. <laughs> Didn't you watch another Bruce Plotation film as well? I also, well, I delved further into the Bruce Lee filmography. <laughs> I say Bruce Lee as if people just know who he is. Bruce Lee is one of the most famous Bruce Lee clones. Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee, Dragon Lee. That's pretty much it. Bruce Lung, if you're being real yeah. generous. But Bruce Lee was one of the most shameless imitators. He copied Bruce Lee's mannerisms so much. But after the Bruce Boitation boom died, he became a director. And I watched, I guess, his most famous directorial credit, maybe. It's called Comfort Women. It's a 90s Category 3 exploitation film. For those who don't know, Category 3 is like the Hong Kong equivalent of NC-17. And Comfort Woman is a ripoff of Men Behind the Sun. Explain to us what Men Behind the Sun is, Will. Men Behind the Sun was a very popular Hong Kong exploitation movie about Japanese war atrocities during the Second World War. 
a very gross, very grimy movie. One of those movies that was very notorious among like people who would trade bootleg VHS tapes in the 90s. Comfort Women is also about Japanese war atrocities. It's about the Chinese women who were forced into sex slavery by Japanese forces. And so this is something that's interesting about Bruce La. Bruce Lass still works in the Chinese film industry. He works in the mainland now. He still goes by the name Bruce Lass. <laughs> Maybe that's his legal name. And one of his most recent films is a movie called The Eyes of Dawn, which is also about comfort women during the Second World War. This is apparently an issue that he cares a lot about. You wouldn't necessarily <laughs> know that from the original film Comfort Women, which is pure exploitation it's i mean it's a movie that is allegedly supposed to make you very angry about these japanese war atrocities but really it's it's you know a lot of a lot of nudity and a lot of violence and a lot of very unpleasant assault scenes so you would recommend it then <laughs> i would recommend it for anybody who would willingly seek out the bruce laugh movie comfort women in this day and age <laughs> that is a very specific audience if you are like me and you will seek it out you will get exactly the movie you were looking for so uh trapped at home i've been watching a lot of movies i actually made a gigantic pile that is now one tenth of the size of movies that i've had sitting on the shelf for over a decade and never watched because i knew i wouldn't really enjoy it <laughs> And in the process, I have a gigantic box overflowing with DVDs and Blu-rays I do not want to watch. And before you say, Will, hey, can I look at that? No, there's nothing you would want in there. I believe you. And so I've kind of almost gotten tired of trying to go through the strategy of like, all right, I'll watch a serious one. I'll watch a silly one. I just want like all the taste. And there's almost like a sense of like no satisfaction that it feels like I'm like running a grueling marathon in some way. So I've actually shifted towards like, all right, I'm going to watch two or three films by this director, two or three films by this writer or cinematographer to give a more sense of completion in that like it feels like I'm doing something instead of just like sitting at a buffet and like eating half a chicken ball moving to the next one eating some rice moving to the next so I get more of a kind of like well-rounded image of people like I watched recently The Outsiders and Rumblefish the two uh, Francis Ford mm. Coppola films had never seen them before you never seen The Outsiders you know what I must have seen it in class. Like, they must have thrown a VHS in. Because I remember reading the book, and there's no way we read a book and they didn't show us the movie. But I didn't see, like, because there's a complete version that only exists on DVD. What's great about it, especially now, is that aesthetically you can so obviously feel that Coppola was, like, ripping off Gone with the Wind. Like, he wanted to make, like, the most Americana thing in the world possible. <laughs> and it's kind of great that like massive visual artifice that's on screen with this insane cast. You got uh, the Karate Kid. You got uh, everyone's favorite Dylan, Kevin Dylan. <laughs> you got uh, Roadhouse himself, Patrick Swayze. Uh, Tom Cruise is in it. Yeah, who exists only as a guy who does backflips in the movie. <laughs> and I hear that one of his backflips is added in the complete version. Oh, Emilio Estevez is in it? I enjoyed it. I mean, it's not a great movie because of the idea of what it's trying to be. Like this like syrupy American that's in your face and it feels like nine hours long as well rumblefish is way better I, i'm not sure exactly the details of it but i think that he started like right after the outsiders almost as if he was frustrated by the outsiders experience and he wanted to do something like completely different based on essie hilton's other novel that's not as loved as much he shoots it in black and white it's expressionist and even more over the top than The Outsiders is. Uh, Coppola says, like, in interviews, like, yeah, I wanted to make, like, an art house uh, movie for kids. And that's essentially what he did. And I had never realized how much John Woo ripped off 
from uh, a bullet in the head at the beginning where the gangsters like John Woo does the exact same fight scene of like the flaming stick that they're like smashing into each other. It's the exact same thing. Out of curiosity, have you ever seen one from I the heart? I have seen one from the heart. I love one from the heart. I didn't like it very much. And I know why I didn't is because it frustrates me on that level of like, you want to be a musical, but like you're almost afraid to be a musical because being one would be something commercial that would be uh, against the realistic feel in this artificial world that you're trying to achieve i'd enjoy it more now i, feel. I, I should see it again but my me- my memory of it is i was very i found it very powerful this combination of like yeah kind of over the top lavish musical aesthetics also but also with this very kind of raw and tender story about a couple who are at a stage of relationship is atrophy all the movie brats were kind of like that way that they're like we love musicals but we're scared of making one well like, like new york new york yeah. the most famous example um 1941 is like spielberg's attempt at a musical coppola actually made a musical finnegan's rainbow which was not a good experience for him so i can understand why he's like fighting against that aesthetic but i still get that frustration of like just do it like scorsese at the end of new york new york when he does a big mgm style musical number like it's great and you're like, I wish it had been more of that within the context of like these kind of miserable human beings surrounded by musical numbers. That would have been fun, but that's not the movie that he made. And did we do an episode on New York, New York? No, it seems like the sort of thing we would, though. Oh, it is a terrible experience. Like, it just does not work at all. New York, New York is one of those movies that I know I'm just going to watch once every 10 years, hoping to love <laughs> yeah. it. And then it's like, oh, still don't like it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I've been watching over these days, waiting to be able to let out so I can go catch the virus and see Tenant the way it was meant to be seen on the big screen.